0: Join the expert team at Ballard Designs for tips, tricks, and tales from interior designers, stylists, and other talents in the design world.
1: Plus, we'll answer our listener question at the end of each show. So don't forget
0: to send them to podcast at ballarddesigns.net. Yes, we love answering them. Now, on with the show. Okay, our guest today is Roger Seifter, a partner at the renowned architecture firm Robert Amstern Architects. He's designed houses all over the world, including California, the UK, India, Canada, and his work has been featured in Architectural Digest, House and Garden, The New York Times, Lux Magazine, and many more. He's also recently co-authored a new book called Houses, Robert Amstern Architects, with his colleagues that features the design work and projects from. The renowned firm, and it was published in January 2021. Roger, thank you so much for joining us. We've we've long awaited this conversation. Thank you, so. thank
2: you. It's <laughs> nice to be here, sort of virtually. It's nice to be. Here.
0: It's hard to even know where to start with with the book because it is a huge and gorgeous tome.
2: It is a tome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I hope it didn't feel like that when you were writing it, because um, I'm sure it was a, a large undertaking. But it's a it's a gorgeous book. And anyone who's house-obsessed or working on their own project, it's a must-read because you'll get a lot of inspiration in it. How does the process begin of writing something of this scale?
2: Well, our our office has a practice of putting out a book a year, basically. Not books on houses, necessarily. Those come every five or six years or so. And it was time to do a follow-up to our last book on houses, which was Designs for a Living, which was published I think in 2014. And so for about two years, we prepared ourselves. We put together a table of contents. We figured out which houses have not yet been run and were worthy of running. We made sure our photography was right. We touched base with our book designer, editor, Elizabeth White, got everything sort of in line so that we could start producing it. And we set a strategy in motion the last time with Designs for a Living that seemed to work out fairly well for us, insofar as each of us wrote the text. We had a little help from a ghostwriter, but we basically wrote the text for each of our houses and worked with uh, Shannon in our office to Edit the order of photography for each one. Spent about a year putting that all together. Uh, at which time we sent it to the public actually we were back and forth with the publisher reviewing the book design at each step. Finally we got the galleys and that was that.
0: Away you go. Well, I I wonder if it's I've actually, you know, we've we've had many architects and and um, and designers on the show who've written books, but I wonder if it is it hard to sort of change gears a little bit when you're you're used to drawings and CAD right. and things in in person, and then go to just to write a book.
2: Well, we might we might be different from a lot of other architectural offices far as writing is actually quite important in, in our firm. Each principal is responsible for writing the, the blurb, so to speak, for the projects that he or she uh, manages. Uh, they then can be edited in some way by our ex- external communications department, but uh, writing skills are stressed you know, all along. I mean, the minutes that we write are exquisitely designed, I would say, as exquisitely designed as our architecture. So I think it's actually sort of, I like writing, and I think it's sort of refreshing to put down the pencils and tell people in words what the thoughts behind our designs are
3: so what is it like revisiting your work and then being able to write and kind of encapsulate everything that you were thinking about when you're you were designing these homes it's fun
2: (laughs) (laughs) because all of these projects were good experiences i'm happy to say um i think that all of our clients have ended up being happy and most of our clients still live in the houses that we've designed for them so Putting the photographs together with our initial thoughts and how how, what we are going to write about, it brings it all back. I mean, it's really it's very interesting for us to sort of retrace the steps that we took, and also keep ourselves from saying how we might correct some things that we did originally. There's no sense in doing that,
3: uh, at least in words. Well, I don't know what you would go back and correct because these homes are so beautiful. One of the things that I, I found really kind of fascinating about the, the homes that you were working on and the rooms that you've created is, even though these homes may be large scale, there's a real sense of intimacy that you create with the architecture, in whether it's in a niche or a curve or something that you create in there. And I think that that's just really beautiful. Well, I think
2: the one thing we try to avoid is um what we call supermarket architecture, where you walk in the front door and you, go, so you get the whole idea of what's in the house. The scale notwithstanding. I mean, there are big houses, you know, mega mansions in the suburbs, you you actually do do that. You know, you walk in, you look out, and you look to your left and your right and you see every room or you see corridors down to every room. No matter what the scale of the house we're designing or the apartment or the renovation, we like, Uh, to be able to uh, learn and discover about the architecture as you walk through the house, through the space. Uh, It does bring the scale down. It makes it much more human. And we find it also makes it much more livable. In the case of large houses, which I've had the pleasure of being responsible for a lot of, it basically never gives you the sense of the entire house in any one place. So you're never overwhelmed by the scale of what might be a very large house you always feel comfortable in it and i will not say cozy necessarily but at least not overwhelmed and you feel that you can manage that architecture
0: one of the houses i think it's one of the it's the first house that you worked on in the book but um I think it might be the second overall. I, it's in Fort Lauderdale. Los Salas? Los Salas. Las Olas. Los Salas. And gosh, I was just so struck by this home because like you said just now, it, it's, it's very large, very grand. But <laughs> it has this, yeah, it sort of rambles a little bit. And I was wondering if you could kind of just start with that, tell everybody about it because it has the beautiful site. It's right on the water in Fort Lauderdale and it's Spanish Revival. It's just, it's,
2: it's really special. Well, we decided with the client to design a house in Spanish colonial revival style, of which there are lots of examples in that part of Florida. The site, which is a double site, it's at the end of a cul-de-sac, not very distinguished. And because of its location there, we decided not to have a so-called grand entry to the house. And instead, you enter through a courtyard or you have a choice of entering through a garden courtyard or a motor courtyard, and then meander essentially along a, an arcade or a loggia towards the front door. So you sort of discover your way, find your way towards the front door. There are various architectural cues that bring you there. And then once you're in the house, you're in a big round stair hall or rotunda which goes up three floors. And from there, you go one way or the other towards the various wings. Uh, so it's another example of sort of discovering the architecture as you walk through mm-hmm. it. The house doesn't really have a so-called grand aspect until you get to the other side facing the water uh, when it sort of lets it all out and you have a nice, beautiful, I think, symmetrical facade uh, with a pergola in the middle, loggia up above, and two wings uh, with Palladian motifs uh, uh, which frame porches flanking it. Uh, So it has a more monumental sense on the waterway Mm -hmm. and also for the neighbors across the waterway uh, than it does on the street, which is really very quiet. You really don't know. You have no sense of how the house is uh, as you come down the street. There's just a garden wall that separates you from that garden.
0: No, actually, yeah, you're totally right. Because I, you know, of course, looking at the book, the, the first couple images you see of it are from the water, but only someone with a boat would, would really get to exactly. <laughs> just, exactly. just be like, oh, wow, look at this incredibly grand house. But I love how unsuspecting, mysterious that kind of is.
2: And then the house also has a it has a fairly sinuous plan. We incorporated curves into the circulation and into the facade towards the water. Well, one, to give you a sense of to make it interesting as you walk through the house, because you're never walking down a straight hallway, which might be rather right long, You're always sort of meandering along, uh, which actually heightens your view out to the gardens uh, just beyond those windows. And it also directs your view not directly across the waterway towards houses, which you really don't want to look at, but sort of obliquely uh, along the, the water. So your, your views are longer and uh, we think better.
0: So let me ask you if, something about this sort of unconventional approach in terms of like the way you're literally approaching the house. Is there something that those of us who are not building from scratch should take away in terms of the way we're, whether it's designing or setting up our house, or if even if we're like re-landscaping, we can kind of use as inspiration? I mean...
2: Well, I think good houses make good neighbors, and for all, well, this is a very affluent, neighborhood with some significant houses, most of which actually aren't all that great. And then it has cottages from the 20s, which are fairly unassuming and actually I think better architecture than some of the newer mega mansions that have been put up. It wasn't our intention to overpower any of these houses with what we built. We wanted to be as unassuming as some of our neighbors, and at the same time, fit into an historic context, which is Spanish colonial Mediterranean revival, um, which often does have this sort of urban approach to placing architecture along a street and defining, you know, having gardens beyond walls and then the house beyond the garden. It's fine to be the best house on the block, but you don't have to prove that to everybody every day.
0: Well, that's a good point about making, um, you know, taking cues from the neighborhood you're already in and using that as your inspiration because.
2: They're cues of style, not of style. Mm-hmm. And they're cues of scale and cues of how you sit along a street. And then also on the other side, cues of how you face the water. So there's nothing, you don't look at this house and think it looks like any other house in the neighborhood, God mm-hmm. forbid. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> it fits
1: in. Right, right. Okay, so you get to this site and you're like, step one, water is the view. Do you start with the outside of the house? Do you start with the inside? Did you start with the style? Like, what were the first few pieces you put together? To yes like- to
2: all. Um, <laughs> and really, it's, it's like, you, you have to, you know, it, it, it's a process where we work in plan, elevation, and model simultaneously, uh, model being the exterior. We know that any move we make in a plan affects what happens in an elevation. We know that how a house is massed on the outside affects both the plan and the elevation, vice versa. So it, there's a simultaneity of activities and design that we undertake so that the design really grows in that regard organically, uh, so that the the plan and the elevation really are married to each other in a very cohesive and sensible way. And one doesn't necessarily overpower the other. I mean, sometimes it's true we'll come up with a napkin sketch image of what the house should look like, which could often be very different from the end result. But sometimes it does lend itself to a a plan, you know, that fits it within that elevation in a a good sort of way. But as I said, we don't let one be any more important than the other.
0: How much does the client know coming in or guide you coming in with?
2: We had worked with the client on another project in Michigan. So he sort of knew all our strong points and maybe not our strong points going into this. And we, I mean, the feedback we had from him was fairly standard insofar as, you know, there was a program, X number of bedrooms and certain relationships between the rooms. It was his and her program that decided there was no formal dining room in this house. You know, instead there are places to eat, you know, spread around. I can't count the number of dining tables there are. (laughs) And he told us, you know, once we visited the site, I mean, I had the, the hottest day of the year in his boat going up and down every canal and Los Olas and Fort Lauderdale looking at all these houses, but he told us which views were important to him. They don't really care about the guest rooms. I mean, they're sort of secondary, but it's, you know, what do you see from the primary suite? Those particulars were pretty much nailed down with him. As I said, we decided together that, and this is also after we went on our boat tour of Port Lauderdale.
1: Such a lovely start to a project, right? right? A boat tour to start?
2: Well, yeah. Except
1: well, he did say it was the hottest day of the year. It was
2: hot, and it was an open boat. It was a okay. Pit- <laughs>
1: okay. I'm sorry it was open. Continue. Sorry, sorry.
2: After a while, you, know, you want to get off the boat. Um, <laughs> and if you're not driving the boat, you know,
1: true, true. just wait. Okay.
2: <laughs> so we, we actually did or I stopped, I had him stop the boat, you know, at, at one or two houses that dated back to the 20s and 30s, which were significant Mediterranean houses. And and I do remember pointing at this and that's, you know, that's what we should look at for this house. And he was all on board with that. I mean, it just seems, you know, perfectly natural there. And actually, we, for precedence, we looked, we did look at, at Florida examples of Mediterranean architecture, but we actually focused more on, how they did it in California, particularly in the LA area in the 20s. This house owes a lot to the California architect Wallace Neff, for example. Mm
0: -hmm. I had some questions about ornamentation because there is some really, really beautiful details, some, some of the ironwork and some, I guess, like what you call this, I'm sure this isn't the right word, but like it's sort of a medallion plaque thing uh, the cartouche. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. It's a cartouche.
2: Come on, the cartouche. <laughs> cartouche. Waited, waiting for his um, family coat of arms, which we never got to carve on, into it. But the, the thing about ornament in uh, Mediterranean architecture is that there is a lot of ornament, but it's used very intentionally. And it's often used to relieve uh, fairly se- severe planarity of walls and other surfaces. So the the walls in the house are all finished in a material called Stuck Pierre, which is essentially ground limestone mixed with plaster. So when it's smeared on the wall, uh, that, the walls sort of look like they're made of stone. And that and the flat stone trim around the windows was basically enough for us to enliven the walls. And then friezes around the rooms and beams and ceilings were essentially the decoration. The ornament so your eyes sort of moves up in every room towards the ceiling or towards the frieze around it which gives you a lot of color and material relief from how severe the actual walls are and then tile work is incorporated in these houses quite often we did incorporate it here and around fountains and the stair risers and the back stair even it's not dripping with ornament which i actually find a lot of so-called Mediterranean and new Mediterranean builder houses are—it's like you don't know where to stop looking. But we wanted to give the eye places to rest, which uh, you know explains a lot of these bare walls.
0: Well, that's funny because I my question literally was when to stop. So that was yeah, it it was it was definitely restrained. Like there was just enough to make it to give it a layer of uh, some richness yeah.
2: and some visual richness. I also just
0: loved sort of those curvilinear lines of the balcony on the back. It looks like a back staircase.
2: Yes. The paramours stair to the guest suite, I guess. It's off to the side. beautiful. And that, you know, we borrowed a lot of these motifs, quite honestly, from precedents from the 1920s, which are borrowed in turn from Andalusian architecture, from vernacular architecture from God knows when in Spain. But you can find that kind of move historically in a lot of different houses. And it's the sort of climate where you can have outdoor staircases like that.
0: Is it fun to get, I mean, I imagine that like y'all have projects in Hampton's, and you obviously did his first home in Michigan. There's one in here in Singapore. Like, I imagine it's a lot of fun to get to switch gears completely. And, or is that really challenging?
2: No, it's, I mean, one of the reasons we all do houses, I mean, the four of us do houses, is that we almost invariably do houses in nice places. And I'm not going to denigrate any cities by naming (laughs) them, but (laughs) I like to travel post COVID. We'll be traveling a lot again. And these projects take, me away from New York and I find that really interesting. And it also lets allows us to work in different styles. You know, we wouldn't do this house in Toronto. You know, just right. as we wouldn't necessarily do the house in that we did in Toronto in Fort Lauderdale.
0: It just seems like the house, you have the one in the book of that's like on the, in the Northeast and then you have this one in South Florida. And it just seems like you almost have to learn a totally different language to design one versus the other because they are so different in terms of the styles and the shapes and the, you know, it's it's really fun to see. Yeah. It's really fun to see it all in one book
2: together. Yeah. And we have, um, uh, as you can gather, we rely a lot on precedent. We're very interested in the architecture that's come before us, the good architecture that's come before us. The library in our office is not the materials library, but the actual architectural reference library. It's one of the best in the, in the city, if not in the world. And it's heavily used. Most of us studied architectural history before we came here. So it's it's just something we enjoy doing. I love working in different styles.
1: How can one kind of educate themselves on a certain style? I just w- wanted to know, I love a good book. Well, so.
2: books in, in Atlanta, you. It's not that you have colonial architecture there necessarily, but you have no. great great later <laughs> interpreters of colonial architecture. You have Neil Reed and Schutze, you know, among others, who enriched the original precedents rather than watered it down. So you have lots of things to look at. I mean, you can ride through Buckhead or uh, through that neighborhood near Emory, I can't remember what it's called, and just see fabulous houses that can inspire you. But it, in addition to that, travel and books, I think, are the best way. To learn about what came before. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Taryn, did you drive through Druid Hills? Mm-hmm. There's some
1: real, yeah, Druid Hills. Yeah. Yes, it's, yeah. It's In some, some ways, better
2: stuff. than Buckhead because the scale is mm-hmm. a little more palpable. Um, and Buckhead is sure. a sort of, oh my God, wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, put, <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Druid
2: Hills is a little more real.
1: <laughs> Druid Hills is amazing. And just again, the, uh, for me, too, it's the uh, landscape growth, too. Because even on right. all your projects, you can tell everything. The landscape plan came at the same time as everything else.
2: Well, I believe that... I may be mistaken, but I believe that the Olmstead sons were involved with the design of Druid Hills, with the land of Druid Hills, which mm-hmm. you know always shows.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. It, that area, again, just feels right. And again, you're all... Well, I remember moving to Atlanta and being like, why is the area so great? You know, yeah. like, "You know, <laughs> wait a second. Olmstead. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, again, to your point, the learning and taking away from the past would help. So that was, yeah, I just wanted to know how to study more so up on the, just on a type. And then the other question I had for you was, you were talking about in the first home we were speaking about that you did places for your eyes to rest. But what if you, again, when is too much texture or ornament or molding and how do you decide what rooms to do it in?
2: Well, every house is different. And every client mm. is different. And there are some clients who, who thrive on more visual stimulation, uh, textural stimulation, physical stimulation than others. So a lot of the answer for that question would, would lie in who we're designing a house for, which factors very, I mean, it factors into every architect's work, but it factors really, really a lot into the work that we do. And I think that's one of the reasons that these houses are all so different from each other, because our clients are all are, very are different, same. have different <laughs> different sensibilities. <laughs> you know, so, so there are some houses in the book, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily ones that I did, which I think have a lot more, for lack of a better word, going on you know, mm-hmm. inside of them than mm-hmm. uh, some of the others. And I think that a lot of that does come from the interests of the client, maybe the special sensibilities of the architect who designed them, and also the interior designer who, uh, if he or she is good, you know, has the right amount of input in the design.
0: That makes sense though and i do think that that's kind of a nice thing to for each of us you know doing it ourselves to remind ourselves of that there's no right answer yeah you know, it's
2: i mean it's not like we're not making pronouncements as to you know this is right this is that you can't do it this way um, mm-hmm. i mean the way that how to design books were done in the 20s i mean i remember my, my mother had some Book that she inherited from her mother on how to decorate your house and it was so many rules it's like you know, you know <laughs> it's like you a cookbook use, yeah. know, never never mix never mix brown and blue i mean that sort of thing and <laughs> there are no real rule except you sort of know what's right um proportion has a lot to do with it scale has a lot to do with it and those are ineffable i mean you can't really define them you have a you need to have a good sensibility for them.
3: Or bring yeah. someone in who has a good sensibility. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah.
1: I, How are you? because, yeah, again, we looking at your work, obviously, is like the most dreamy thing, you know, looking through this book. But also coming from a place of I have many friends who live in the Burbs here. They have the box house that, again, is a nice home and they're fortunate right. to have. But when and what... Can they do to enhance it? And to, that's where my questions kind of come from too. Is maybe they're not able to have big plans, but how to take the architecture they have and make it more? And that's why I was kind of asking about like beadboard's been around forever. People throw a beadboard here and that you know what I mean. And then right. you know, with the farm style, everybody's put up shiplap. 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 And then when do you use board and batten? Did I say that one right? Yeah.
2: Board and batten, right? And when do
1: you use wainscoting? Because I think these are what, again, the language that people, Joe Schmo, like me, kind of. <laughs> well, we know, I, I think but...
2: people shouldn't. Sh- you shouldn't be you shouldn't be afraid to rely on your instincts okay. uh, unless you're doing a, a major physical change to your environment. Typically, what you do can be corrected if you decide you don't like it. I mean, we always say, you know, it's only paint. I mean, if yes, you paint your room the wrong color, so what? But you also shouldn't be afraid to consult a professional. Most professionals will work with you on different levels, to different depths. So if you want to work with somebody on a consulting basis rather than a full design basis, you should look for somebody who will do that, because there's no harm in getting a little professional help in these things, particularly with the harder deci- making for making the harder decisions. I mean, working with a boxy house is it's a challenge, mm-hmm. and I, I've never lived in one. Well, no, I did. I grew up in one. I grew up in a developer house and my mother did See? everything. So uh, well, I know. Well, she I, had
1: her book. She had her book. She had her so. book. Yeah. Uh,
2: so we, we never had brown and blue in the same room. Um, but but I, I won't tell you anything else that was in that house. The one thing I learned from that house actually, because it was a ranch house, was that, uh, there's, that stairs are great things. It's really wonderful having a second floor. So um, whenever I can, I design houses with more than one floor.
1: Wait, why? I want to know your reasoning.
2: Because I think that vertical movement is as important as horizontal movement as in discovering a space.
0: I would not have thought about that, but I like it.
2: And then stairs are also ways of, there's a straight run stairs, but they're also very interesting ways of making staircases. Again, if you look through a book, you'll see there's no Some such thing as a, t-
0: yeah.
2: as a, I mean, stairs are great rooms. It's not just a vehicle to get up and down. But builders' houses have a lot of challenges. Build the people who design them typically don't think about proportion. They think about how to get the most, the least space for the most money, with the right whatever the the marketable features are. Architecture per se is not one of their concerns.
0: I, w- I wonder if you want to tell us a little bit about your own home. It's a I believe it's a Queen Anne revival in
2: yes. New Jersey.
0: You've been working on for many years.
2: Well, it's it, we, m- my wife and I. We're both architects. We met in architecture school, actually. <laughs> and for better or worse. Oh, my
1: gosh. You must drive around neighborhoods and be like, both together, being like, ugh. Blech.
2: No, we stopped <laughs> doing that. <laughs> 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 like, well we, we're fortunate. We live in a town that was, um, there's a stretch of Essex County, which is just west of Newark, that was essentially finished by the 30s. It's mostly developed between 1880 and 1930. So the housing stock is really quite excellent, and it's it's a center for architects. I mean, there's so many design professionals live in this area, it's unbelievable. And the houses aren't, by and large, all that big. I mean, we're talking about 3,000-square-foot houses and maybe even less. A lot of Dutch colonials, things like that. So our house is a Queen Anne Revival. It was built in 19, 1899, and it was one of three houses built on our street which was opposite at the time, a riding ring owned by the Bamberger family who were a big merchant family based in Newark at the time. So there's a a curve to the street that these houses sort of are along. And they were built as summer houses, apparently. People would come out in the summer and stay in them. By the time we got to it, it had been through maybe three different owners. It had had a fire which burned off its third story. So it had this ranch house roof to it. It had composite siding and the windows were the original windows, but most of them were non-functional, but it had a fantastic plan and we walked into it and we had no money at the time. So we just walked into it and it was after moving from an apartment, opened the door and we just saw that the rooms are sort of open to each other in a very shingle style sort of way, huge wide cased openings between the two and originally I had sliding. pocketing doors between them. All the trim was chestnut. It had a nice big stair. Horrible kitchen, which was, I think, originally a summer kitchen. And so we just lived in it for the first 15 years and paid bills and kept it watertight and what have you. And it was like uh, we woke up every day and hoped that it wouldn't rain inside the house. And then one day I brought a toilet home from Home Depot, which started everything we redid a powder room and that grew into a new kitchen which grew into a screen porch and grew into basically we redid all the, the wet rooms in the house and our final final move was taking the siding off replacing all the windows with they're actually pillow windows but they're perfectly nice looking they look like they're true divided light but they're not so nice windows and we put wood siding, wood shingles on the house. We never fixed the roof. It still has a ranch house roof. It now looks like, except for the roof, it looks, uh, we think, the way that its original designer thought that it should look. And it's sort of been a labor of love and hate at the same time. You know, every Mm -hmm. once in a while we think, why do we live here? If we moved out, I'd move to New York and my wife would move out to the country. So we just have different <laughs> sensibilities. And our kids grew up in the house. So they would, uh, uh, I mean, even though they don't live there anymore, they, they wouldn't understand if we ever got rid of it.
0: Did you think that everyone has that feeling? That, I mean, not your Uh-oh. clients, but everyone is like, oh, why do I, ha- mm-hmm. I hate this house? Why do I live here? I need to move. And then the next day you're like, oh, I love this house. I'm so happy we live here. I feel like that's a normal. Mm-hmm. Again, not your clients they love it they love their homes
1: unequivocally. Or I think that's when your parents, normal. like you said no, our clients my are parents balanced. why do i love that house but i grew up in it so in my yeah to your point i'm like I wasn't there wasn't anything amazing about it but don't sell it <laughs> makes zero sense
2: <laughs> I know. Well, when, when my mother sold her house, I was very happy. <laughs> I, was, I always wanted the modern house down the street. Oh, yes. like, why don't you live you know, where the psychiatrist lives? Why don't you live in that? Why don't we have that house?
3: <laughs> I love that. So from an early age, you were, you were destined to be in architecture.
2: I wanted to be an architect from the age of 10, <laughs> except for there was a detour in college where I was a German major, German literature major.
0: Have you ever done any projects in Germany?
2: No, I have not. Um, our Grant Morani, my partner, is actually finishing a house in Berlin, but I have not.
0: Well, you better get the project next time. Yes. Yeah. So you said you, you mentioned earlier that you're working on a new book about. Um, well,
2: uh, we're not working on it actually. Bob is um, Bob Stern is finishing up his memoir, which is due to be published at the end of the year, which is coming up, and so that'll be the next book coming out. From our office our new next houses book is not due i would say for another three or four years
0: so there's a um a project you did in kiowa i loved that one as well especially seeing it sort of side by side from the the florida home because mm-hmm. they're so very different but both beachside second homes i was wondering if you wanted to kind of tell people about that especially considering it was sort of based on a design a previous design
2: Right. Well, the house we designed the original house, this is a renovation, technically.
1: That was a renovation?
2: It was a renovation what? of a house that we designed in 1999. It was finished in 2002. And that house was based on a Stanford White House, a number of Stanford White Houses, some in Montauk, but also a house, I think it's called the Lawrence Robb House in Southampton, which has this chimney going up through the main gable, which we borrowed quite literally for the front of this house. In any case, it was a shingle style house built when most of the architecture going up on Kiowa, except that time, wasn't all that distinguished. There were a number of houses moving towards the shingle style, which we weren't involved with, but this was one of the first serious studies in that style along that strip of beach. It was actually down the road from the Kiowa Beach Club, which I worked on. Uh, which predates it by about six years, which was maybe the first serious exercise, foray into the shingle style on that island. Our clients for this, what's what you see in the book, had a house on Kiwa. They had already built a house with another architect and had always walked by this house on the ocean. When it came up for sale, they grabbed it and came to us, it's maybe five years ago or so, and wanted a new kitchen. It was a kitchen that had been designed in 1996, heaven. It was a, a closed off kitchen with really just a pass through to the family room and not the way that people use kitchens now. In addition to that, they wanted a proper seating area enclosed off the pool. What we had alongside the pool, parallel to the ocean was a pergola just for shade, but no pool room, proper pool room per se. So that's how the, the project started. And then it morphed fairly quickly, and this is partially due to the client and also due to input from Tammy Connor, the interior designer, and our also, also our own sense. So it morphed into, we basically touched every inch of the house. So in addition to putting a new kitchen on, we upgraded, I would say, the finishes throughout the house, changed the flooring to wide plank floors, gutted the third floor, put in a and, and made what was originally, I think, two guest rooms into a bunk room and parents suite. The pool room is a big room now that's double height with a home office above it and a billiards room, facility for big screen TV. It was completely all-encompassing. And then there were things that you don't see, like every system in the house had to be completely redone, because uh, after 20 years on the ocean, things do degrade, even in the best right. of architecture. So needed new air conditioning, new wiring. The whole nine yards. It was a big, big, big renovation.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that's quite a kitchen renovation,
3: (laughs)
2: Yeah,
0: kitchen makeover.
3: But what do you think about going back every 20 years and like revisiting houses that you've already done? It was it was not easy. I mean, you
2: don't you have a natural resistance to not wanting to change what you did. But Mm -hmm. then once you get past that, it was a good exercise, you know, because it made us look very objectively at what we had done. And take stock of things that even back then we thought we might have wanted to do and possibly find ways of including those aspects or changing them for what this client needed in the house. It wasn't a struggle for us at all. If you ask the client, she might feel a little differently. There were a couple of times where I think she found I was stubborn about changing certain things and like the fireplace, (laughs) the fireplaces were a lot of them were based on or sort of adapted from Stanford white designs, So they were, to some modern eyes, Victorian, maybe a little too detailed. And I think that their sensibility and Tammy Connor's sensibility was something a little more pared down, a little more classical. So they asked us to Mm -hmm. redo all the fireplaces. And I know that that was a, a difficult choice for us, but you know, so what? It was photographed. They weren't necessarily works of art. They were nice pieces of craft. And we replace them with perfectly beautiful fireplaces in their place.
0: <laughs> I do think that the design of the interiors was—it's really beautiful. Uh, we we have had Tammy great. on the show. She's,
2: yeah, she's she was great. A, a great team Even if player. She made
0: the fireplace. <laughs> oh, we also
2: redid the landscape. Um, that was a big part of it as well. I think that our office did the original landscape design, which is not really much of a design. I mean, there's a turnaround in front and some native plants, and that's where you know the original owner's budget sort of ran thin. And the new owners brought in a firm called Werdemer and Klein, who are based in, I believe they're based in Charleston. And Cindy Klein was the principal who worked on it. And she reimagined, you know, every side of the house, most of the front and back, because the side yards are fairly narrow, gave it a proper motor court, a real driveway lined with, I don't know what kind of tree. But it looks like, and without being over the top, but it has this sort of quiet, Southern sensibility about it. it seems very much of its place.
0: I love all that pink muley grass; it's really fun. I felt like the some of the walkways were very whimsical too. The it sort of has like the boardwalk a, at the back. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, that actually the boardwalk at the back it meanders, and it meanders actually for a real purpose, which is to it needs to skirt the dunes. It can't sit on the dunes; it has to sit above the dunes to protect them. So the the meandering path is environmentally vetted and at Ah. the same time it just gives you this wonderful way of getting to the beach not not a straight line for for us for the architects it's it's really a lot of fun walking that, turning back every 30 feet or so looking at the house because you see you you get to see the house from all these different angles Mm -hmm. as you get towards the beach
0: it's hard to imagine not wanting this to be your primary residence
2: it's not a weekend house it's a little more than a weekend house.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe is it there? Has it become their primary residence? No, I wonder? no.
2: But oh, okay. I think, uh, as in the case with many, a lot of our houses are summer houses or or vacation houses, mm-hmm. not weekend houses, but but second houses, second and third houses. And with COVID, many of them have become de facto primary residences. You know, insofar as, as the clients have just spent an awful lot of time much more time than they originally decided and and planned on staying there. Unfortunately, all of these houses are fully winterized and their systems are state-of-the-art. So whatever season it is, we haven't been called in to upgrade any of their mechanical (laughs) systems. Uh, We have been called in to help some clients in terms of how refining the spaces that they work in Mm -hmm. at home. Uh, Not those clients, but the the last house in the book was a house in New England. Was originally designed as a house that the clients, even though it's fairly large, they would go to maybe four weeks, five weeks throughout the summer. And with COVID, they've spent, I think they spent about a third of last year in the house. And he has asked us to design a separate office building, it's a little studio building for him to work in since he's essentially taken over the library as his workplace uh, so that nobody else in his family can, can access it. But that, I don't think that's. The first of such requests we're going to be getting
0: yeah yeah i'm I'm sure i mean i think we could probably ask questions all day about the book because there's there's so many projects that we have not even touched on and i also have to just tell people some of the interior design interior designers who worked on the projects there's some gorgeous interior design in here too so you get it's a double whammy but um i do think we need to answer a dilemma if if you're up for it
2: okay let's do it
1: This one is from Amanda, and she writes, My family four is about to move into a stunning 1930s Santa Barbara-style home. It has original wall-to-wall hand-painted tile. The living room is a rectangle shape with built-ins and a fireplace, making furniture placement a challenge. My questions are twofold. Number one, how should I lay out the furniture? We are loungers and love to watch movies and relax, so TV needs to be worked in. I was thinking we could put a TV directly across from the fireplace and then have a couch and two chairs across be flanked by the TV on one end and the fireplace on the other. What type and color furniture would you put in here? What type of couch? I like to brighten it up but don't want it to look out of place near the dramatic sconces and floors. 3. Dining room table suggestions are needed. I've been considering a glass-top dining room table so you can see the floor while you're sitting on the table. This is totally outside of what I would normally pick, but I'm kind of into the idea. And asked any of our thoughts. And yeah. she, and she it, it is
0: she does have incredible hand-painted tile on the floor there's lots of um you know she kind of has this like white copper hood over the fireplace
3: i it's think got, it's copper yeah it's got amazing details mm-hmm. the these blues and reds and yellows that are happening in that tile are really pretty amazing but would be challenging to to figure out how to pull colors from
0: mm-hmm. what do you think roger well Give her I, your...
2: I, for me the easiest answer is do not put a glass top table in the dining room I think there's enough tile floor around mm. it that you get the idea. You don't have to look through your soup to see the you know what you're sitting <laughs> over. Yeah. Um so I would put a nice wood table in that dining room. I mean the the actually one of the, one of the to go back to our book, one of the, the houses in our book, which is one in Mountain Lake, Florida, is a similar vintage and its primary rooms, it's living room, entry hall, and dining room. Uh, under the wall-to-wall carpeting that we took out had this gorgeous tile floor similar to this actually and we decided that who needs rugs when you have a floor like this Mm -hmm. uh, with the interior designer so i think that you should look at you should think of these floors as your rugs and just as if you had a beautiful rug in your dining room you wouldn't have a glass top table just
0: right well and and she could always do like leggier chairs or yeah
2: so you can see underneath it i mean you you I'm assuming that the dining room is the first two photographs uh, I was trying to figure out the architecture of the space. the The thing about the fireplace is that it's it's a very pretty fireplace, but it's it's tiny. And if this really is in California and the furniture is overscaled the way it often is in California, I think it would be odd to focus the furniture around the fireplace. So mm. it also nobody uses the fireplace part in California. Uh, <laughs> So her instinct to put the TV in that built-in or modify the built-in opposite it, which I think is opposite it, might be mm-hmm. the right thing, as long as the furniture is faced in a way that you can actually sit on it and watch TV. But I guess if you have a sofa across the room, I mean, most people lie on a sofa to watch TV, at least I do. If you have a sofa with two chairs opposite it and a couple of pull-up chairs in front of the fireplace that might be the right way to respect the fireplace but also allow people to watch the tv i mean another way that if if there were no windows next to the fireplace you could have or maybe you could even do it you could have a chest of some sort with a tv on a lift i don't know in in my experience TVs on lifts and chests always look like TVs on lifts and chests. So the chests never look like they're doing anything except hiding a TV. <laughs> so my, my money is on putting the TV opposite the fireplace, which is following her instinct.
0: Yeah. She also asked about like what type of furniture, color furniture, how to brighten it up. She has these dramatic sort of periods, I'm assuming, sconces on the wall that are very... Spanish. Spanish. Yes, there you go. Uh, yeah, I was trying to think of what, what it word. It could word. only
2: be Spanish. I would. I would keep this. I would keep the upholstery simple. I am not a decorator. So, you know, don't go by me. But <laughs> if it were my house, I would probably upholster the furniture in solids and neutrals, or pick up one of the lighter colors in the floor. There are the only light color in the floor seems to be the sort of goldish colors. But I don't know if I would do that. So maybe new, something neutral, and then have pillows that do pick up the colors that have mm-hmm. patterns.
0: Yeah, it's like, she, you've got such a great base already and the, the floor is so magical, like your furniture doesn't need to... I don't
2: think it needs to fight it, but I think it right. needs to be the right scale. I am thinking soft upholstery, not wood frames. Um, mm-hmm. and I imagine that the, wood, the millwork that's in the room, which may or may not be original, it's hard to tell, but would probably be kept dark the doors are dark, for example. So I think there's enough dark happening already. And yeah. anything you could do to lighten it up might help.
0: I would also say, I mean, this just, again, just personal, my personal opinion, but I, if you are going to go without a rug, then doing lots of soft like lots of skirts very very like lush comfortable furniture and maybe some like lots of drapery just not only for probably sound but just to kind of help it well without a rug you don't have any
2: sound attenuation i mean you you are relying on your furniture and your Mm -hmm. window coverings that's true Um, and i mean there's an iron rod above the steel door which is actually nice in its period I mean, you could have the same sort of curtain hardware everywhere with just panels mm-hmm. hanging. Also, if you if you carry your, we do do this in a lot of rooms that have TVs, or our decorators do as well. If you have skirts, then you can have chairs on swivels, which oh. would be important oh, here. That would be mm-hmm.
3: great for yeah. the TV and the fireplace. Right.
2: And they don't have to look like barkelanges; they can look like really nice upholstered pieces.
3: We
0: have a few. You can look on our website. Okay. <laughs>
3: well this is an amazing space. But
0: yes, yeah, I love that's a smart idea. Yeah, I'm so I would rough. love to see it once she's got it all worked out cuz it's so it is pretty.
3: It's a very unique and very stunning floor. Yeah. I mean mm. it's just really amazing.
0: Amanda, thank you for listening and for sending in your question. It was it's a it was a treat to see these floors because they're like we said, so special. So send us pictures you.
3: of what you've done. Yes.
0: Yes. We want to see for sure. Roger, thank you so much. Can you tell everyone where to find you, follow you, get your book?
2: Yes. So we have, we do have two websites. Our general website is Ramza.com, that's ramsa.com. That's R-A-M-S-A dot But there's also a, a sub-website called ramsahouses.com, which is R-A-M-S-A-H-O-U-S-E-S dot com. Uh, if you're particularly interested in looking at our more recent residential work, there are some houses on the on the regular website though, and they link to each other. And our Instagram tab is at Rams Architects. So that's at R A M S A R C H I T E C T S.
0: Well, thank you for joining us. We enjoyed looking oh, thank through your you. book. This is fun. And I feel like if anyone is yeah, if you're about to start your own project, it's a, it's definitely a... Yeah,
3: check this out.